Hi guys, I'm Sean McCambridge. For over 20 years, I've been inquisitive, learning and experimenting with different ways to leverage our greatest asset, our minds, to work for us rather than against us. Join me as I engage with these inspirational guests to provide you knowledge and insights to help you achieve more. This show is sponsored by Stellar Recruitment and inspired by a company purpose and why, which is inspiring growth and changing lives. Thanks very much for tuning in. This is a bonus episode as part of our recent live StellarX event we held here in Brisbane, an inspirational event. The first speaker I'm going to introduce is Mark Matthews, an internationally acclaimed keynote speaker, big wave surfer, and inspirational individual. He's going to talk about this notion of life beyond fear. It reduced most of us to tears in the, the session he held, so I'm very confident you'll enjoy. Thanks for tuning in. That, that was actually a brand new clip. I just had that edited. It's like the first time I've seen it. I don't think the person who made it likes me all that much. <laughs> Do you notice like 95% of the waves are me wiping out and almost dying? <laughs> My wife actually edited that. I'm like, I'm like, what have I done in the last week that she wanted to watch a minute of footage of me almost dying? <laughs> uh, I've been surfing... Um, big waves now for two decades and and in that time usually when I show audiences footage or photos of what I do for a living they're usually pretty certain for me to be able to do that I'm probably just one or two things I'm either batshit crazy or maybe I was just born with some kind of brain defect that kind of just stops me feeling fear like average people do couldn't be further from the truth I feel fear exactly the same way as everyone else does. I'm certain in some situations I probably feel a whole lot more. I can actually remember a, um, a surf session that I had. It was quite a while back. And um, we travelled to Hawaii, so we went to the island of Oahu. Is everyone familiar with Oahu? Like Waikiki Beach and stuff, North Shore. So Oahu has this amazing natural surf phenomenon that attracts surfers from all over the world from all different ability levels because on any given day during winter in, on the island of Oahu, the north shore of the island can have like 50-foot high waves, like perfect for professional big wave surfers. But on the exact same day that it's 50-foot on the north shore, you can just drive one hour south to Waikiki Beach and it would be the most perfect shoulder to waist high waves for beginner surfers or young kids. So it kind of attracts everyone from all over the world. We had flown from Sydney and landed late in the afternoon and after the long plane ride, I was kind of desperate to just get out in the water for a quick surf. And we rushed to the hotel, unpacked all our stuff. And I remember turning up to the, to the beach just being greeted by perfect condition, like as good as it gets. I couldn't get out there fast enough, like quickly board shorts on, I'm like leg around, waxing up my board and just paddling out as fast as I could to ride a couple of waves before the sunset. I remember it was after the, um, would have been the third wave that I rode. I was kind of standing in near shore, like waist deep water, just having this moment of like reflection. I'm like, oh, after that long plane ride, here I am, warm water in Hawaii, there's like palm trees on the beach, the sun's starting to set, the waves are perfect. Like Life doesn't get much better than this for a surfer. I thought I might just paddle out and get one last wave before the sun goes down. Gee, I wish I could take that decision back. See, in the time that it took for me to paddle back out the back and find that last wave, out of the blue, the waves doubled in size. All of a sudden, I'm out in waves that are bigger than anything that I've been out in at that point in my life. And I remember kind of like nervously looking around and, and realising that all the other surfers who I'd been out there surfing with, they'd already made their way in as I was paddling back out. So I'm sitting out there all alone. I'm like, okay, just stay calm. Next wave that comes through, just catch it and get yourself to the safety of the beach. So this wave pops up in front of me and I'm like, I take a look. 
I'm like, yeah, this is it. I'm, I'm out of here. I turn around and start paddling to catch this wave. I'm paddling, I'm paddling, I'm paddling, I'm paddling. And then right before I'm about to take off, can't do it. I'm too scared of wiping out. Next thing I'll do is turn around fast as I can, start paddling back out the back so that the next wave doesn't break on top of my head. I played cat and mouse with the waves, trying to get myself to the safety of the beach for about the next 45 minutes. Couldn't bring myself to take off on a wave because I didn't want to wipe out. But then at the same time, I was too scared to just paddle to shore because I was, thought while I was paddling, a wave would come through and break on top of me. Eventually, I realised I was trapped. By this time, I was 200 metres from shore. Sun had fully set. It's pitch black. I'm right on the like knife's edge of a full-blown panic attack when this thought it just pops into my head. I wonder what's swimming around below me right now. <laughs> that just sent me totally over the edge. I started to panic. Heart started going a million miles an hour. I got the shallowness of breathing you get when you panic. I'm like <laughs> I had tears welling up in my eyes. Felt like there was a cricket ball stuck in my throat. I couldn't swallow. I could not think straight like I was completely frozen 200 meters from shore in the dark sitting like this <laughs> and then all of a sudden <laughs> I get this tap on the shoulder and I turned around straight away all my fear was gone I knew I was going to be absolutely fine right there in front of me was my darling mother. She had paddled out on her boogie board. <laughs> All the way out into the uh, waist-high waves of Waikiki Beach, way back in 1991 to rescue 10-year-old me. <laughs> I wasn't born fearless. I was terrified of the ocean when I was a little boy. My mum used to have to paddle out and rescue me like that in waist-high waves, like into my early teenage years. Like, and, it, and it sounds kind of sweet, mum paddling out to rescue her son. It's like, that's not how I remember it. <laughs> I, I grew up down in Sydney at a beach called Maroubra Beach. And when I was growing up down in Maroubra, it was kind of notoriously known as a rough, tough neighbourhood. So when I'm sitting out in the surf, surrounded by my friends, and then the older surfers, who I'm kind of like equal parts scared of, but I'm trying to impress them, my mum would come paddling out on her yellow boogie board like this, <laughs> rescue me in front of everyone. <sighs> it took me 20 years to live this down. It scarred me. I always thought that going from that 10-year-old boy to becoming a professional big wave surfer, surely... Surely the biggest fear that I was going to have to overcome in my life would have to be the fear of drowning, right? Nope. There's been one thing that has scared me more in my life than drowning in the ocean. It's given me more nerves, anxiety, more stress, more sleepless nights. Public speaking. <laughs> I promise you, I feel more anxious and nervous before I'm about to walk up on stage and talk in front of a group of people than I do before I'm about to paddle out into waves that could kill me. This is the crazy thing about fear. Kind of fascinating, but also really frustrating. It does not matter what your fear is or how it compares to anyone else's fear. Like We all have different fears because we've got different genetic personality traits. We've had different past childhood experiences and the combination of those two things frames the way we see the world. So we see different situations differently. So some things for some people, like this, it's terrifying. For others, not so much. I'm uh, like hyper introvert. Has anyone done like the personality trait finder, you know, like the old Myers-Briggs thing? Scored in like the top 1% of most introverted people on the planet. Only time I've ever been successful at taking a test in my life. And what do I get? Like, I get a lifetime of social anxiety for it. <laughs> what I've come to realise though, having ended up in two careers that terrify me, it doesn't matter 
what your fear is, how it compares to anyone else's. The only thing that really matters is just if one of your fears is in the way of something that's important to you. So like fear of failure, fear of not being good enough, the imposter syndrome that everyone gets, might be holding you back from career progression or success or early financial freedom. Or you might have a fear of um, rejection. That might stop you meeting the love of your life. Might stop you like deepening the relationships in your life. Or a fear of sacrifice or fear of pain that holds you back from achieving the, uh, the health-related goals that you might want to achieve. Don't matter what your fear is. Just matters if it's in the way of something important to you. <clears throat> I spent a, a good chunk of my life early on when I was trying to figure out how to do these two careers and not have to deal with the stress and the nerves, researching everything I could find about fear. I thought for sure there must be some smart person out there that's come up with some sort of technique that I can use and apply and then not have to go through all this stress and still be able to be successful in my careers. And, and I reckon in that time I've read close to every piece of literature written about fear. And whether it was written by like psychologists, psychiatrists, uh, neuroscientist, successful business person, an uh, Olympic athlete, the Dalai Lama. Every single one of the books that I've read that was actually worth reading pretty much said exactly the same thing. And that is the only way through fear, the only way, is experience. That's the only way through fear. You have to just do something over and over and over again to build up like the skills that you need and obtain the knowledge you need to be able to take that walk into the environment that makes you nervous and then eventually kind of master that environment. And then it's like this subtle switch goes off in your brain and all the things that made you really nervous and anxious, once you have that experience and the skills and the knowledge as it gets better and better, all of a sudden the switch just, just tweaks a tiny bit and the nerves and the anxiety just switch over to excitement. Because it's like, hold on, I've got these skills and knowledge now, I can go out here and test them, see if I can do this. It's just such a subtle switch because physiologically the response that you have between anxiety and excitement, it's really, really similar. The, the clinical psychologists, they call uh, the process of getting that experience to overcome fear, they call it voluntary exposure therapy. And there's a really important reason why they call it voluntary. So when they work with their clients, they have the most debilitating levels of fear. So people who have like severe agoraphobia. In order for anything the psychologist does with their patient to be of benefit, the patient, they have to want to be there. They have to choose to want to take on that fear and get over it. If they don't want to be there, there's not much the psychologist can do to help them. I actually saw the, this one book that I was reading about voluntary exposure therapy. They were talking about studies that they did on rats. And what they did with the rats was they forced them into a cage, an area that had the scent of a cat, their biggest predator. And then they studied all the like sort of physiological response that were going on in the rat as it was forced into the cage. And then they got another rat and they put like food on the other side of the same environment, same scary environment. So the rat voluntarily went into the scary environment to get the food. And then they studied the physiological response of that rat. And it was totally different. And what they thought was that the second rat that was actually pursuing something of value was going to be, based on the physiological markers, exponentially more resilient across time because it chose to go into the environment. And the book put it in a really nice way because it said, it's like a hunter switch goes off. 
So rather than being a prey animal, it, there's a switch that's flicked and then all of a sudden your nervous system's responding as though you're a hunter. <clears throat> the version of um, voluntary exposure therapy that we do in big wave surfing, it's all about conditioning yourself to not panic through the scariest moments of big wave surfing, which is basically when a wave like twice as high as the ceiling is trying to hold you underwater and drown you. And the only way that I've found to mimic that situation close enough in order to actually get the conditioning is I go out and get a, um, a free diver. So, you know, like free divers can hold their breath for kind of 10 minutes at a time, like way longer than what I can. And then myself and the free diver, we go to the, um, the deep water pools. So they're usually the ones below the Olympic diving boards and they're kind of five meters deep. And for training, myself and the free diver, we stand on the edge of the pool and the alarm goes off. And when the alarm goes off, you dive into the water, swim down to the bottom. And you touch the bottom of the pool. When I touch the bottom of the pool, it's my job to get myself to the surface to breathe. Freediver's job, hold me underwater till I pass out. So we fight and wrestle at the bottom of the pool the whole time I'm trying to get him off me like this, but stay composed and not run out of oxygen, get myself to the top to breathe. Only way to deal with fear is experience. I've never come across a wave in all my life, no matter how big, that has held me underwater for even half as long as what that prick holds me underwater. <laughs> I've, also, I've also never woken up on the morning of training wanting to go and do that shit. <laughs> I hate it. It's the most uncomfortable feeling ever. But it is the only way that I can be safe out in the ocean, to have that experience, to go through it over and over and over again and rewire the way my brain responds to all the different urges that you feel when you need to breathe. It's the only way to do it. Experience is the only way that you can deal with fear. But getting that experience, that sucks. <laughs> Public, the public speaking version of this is the worst. Is there, does anyone not like public speaking? Like people? Okay, if you have your hands up, just put your hands up. Just come onto the stage. I just want... <laughs> That's like me holding you underwater. That's what it is. <clears throat> um, because it's hard to get the experience, that's why, for me, I feel like the starting point has to be that I've got to want it more than I fear it. Like I've got to want the success that lies beyond the fear more than, what I, more than I fear doing what it takes to get there. Or I've got to want to hold on to what I've got more than I fear losing it. And often to be able to hold on to what you now have, you have to continually evolve. I always end up at these three different things that help motivate me. There's a whole bunch of other ones, but I just find that these ones are probably the most powerful for me. And they are what, why, and who. Three pretty simple questions. And I try and ask, themselves to ask them of myself continuously so they're really clear in my mind. And it's what does success look like? Why do I want to succeed? Who the hell is going to help me get there? This is what success looks like in big wave surfing. When I fly my team of filmers, photographers, my water safety crew, and we fly around the world and we chase down a big swell, for that trip to be successful, it's my job to just find the biggest wave of the day and get myself inside the barreling part. And then my team, my filmers, my photographers, they, they capture the moment, create the content. Content goes out into the media based on the marketing value of the media. We get paid in bigger and bigger sponsors. That's like the basic business of big wave surfing. Every moment for me in the lead up to this is nerve wracking. It's terrifying. But when I've done all the hard work and I get to this exact position, I know from here I'm going to make it outside this wave. And just for like three or four seconds, I get to stand back and take in all the force and energy of the ocean. It's by far the best feeling in the sport of surfing. Here's a little bit of footage of um, what it looks like to get barrel. 
now I just really want to go surfing. <laughs> <laughs> so like a clear picture of what success looks like across different aspects of your, of your life, across different timescales is really good. And the more detailed and the more clear you are on all those different things, the better. And then you kind of reinforce the pictures of success with the reason why you want to do it. Often when I've got to do the training that I don't want to do, whether it's the underwater or the public speaking version, I, um, I always just stop and imagine like what the smile on my mum's face is going to look like the day that I get to go up to her and hand her the front door keys to a brand new house. Like I can see that smile clear as day. I've been picturing it for about 10 years now. And I can feel the excitement that she's going to have just jumping up and down when I go, Mum, this is your new house. Thank you for everything you've done for me. I think tying your loved ones to your success. Like how are your loved ones or your future loved ones, friends, family, kids, parents, how do they benefit from your success? And you can go beyond loved ones and go your broader community. Like how do all these people benefit from the hard work you do, the risks that you take, the nerves that you face? If you tie your loved ones to your success, I think that's a great way to kind of make that switch from prey to hunter. And then you're walking through the world as though you're a hunter. And the world is not preying on you because you've got a clear objective that you know that you want and it's meaningful. So that's what does success look like? Why do you want to succeed? I actually also came across a, um, like this, this, there was this Russian neuroscientist and I came via a different neuroscientist. I can't read Russian, but <laughs> it was really good. He, he was studying what he called or coined the orienting reflex. And he believed it's like this reflexive mechanism in your brain that in a roundabout way through all the other sort of mechanisms that go on. But this one reflexive mechanism he believed was responsible for like 80% of your brain's ability to create positive emotion. So all the different neurochemicals, dopamine, serotonin, like all this different stuff that like makes you happy in the world, makes you motivated, makes you resilient. He thought 80% of your brain's ability to do it came from this reflexive mechanism. And what the orienting reflex is doing is basically subconsciously all throughout your day, it's just looking for evidence of progression towards something important. It could be away from something negative, exact same thing. But it just wants to know that whatever individual task that you're doing no matter how mundane it might feel in the moment, if that is tied to something important that you're doing or where you want to go, that picture that you've created, then that orienting reflex creates that positive emotion. Just movement towards something beneficial. So if you're not really clear on like what you want from life, why you want it, what you want to avoid, if the picture's not clear, the part of your brain is just uncertain all the time and it doesn't create the positive emotion. And then the kicker with that is it's kind of like your brain needs the positive emotion so it just wants to find it from the easiest possible place, which is usually all the fun vices that we have, <laughs> junk food, alcohol, gambling for some, like all these different things. And I'm not saying you don't do them, I do all of them, but they can keep them in check. <laughs> if you're getting enough positive emotion from forward progression towards something beneficial. That's how you keep all the other vices in check. <clears throat> it's funny, when I talk about like this with businesses, I'm, I'm always sitting in the um, audience beforehand listening to their like business strategy. They're doing a strategy update. These are the goals. These are the KPIs. And the level of detail is insane. Like do, for your companies, do you have like pretty, pretty kind of key performance indicators and where you need to get to? Yeah. Anyone got that for their marriage? <laughs> your friendships? Your health? Like do, do you have, 
Like imagine applying that level of clarity and goal setting and indicators and strategy to all aspects of your life. Like think how good that is for that part of your brain. So that's what does success look like? Why do you want to succeed? And who the hell is going to help you get there? Um, I wasn't actually born particularly um, genetically gifted to be a professional surfer, like not physically, because for professional surfing, it's better to have low centre of gravity. Like you want big, thick, stocky legs, low centre of gravity, good for balance, don't fall off on waves, right? I went and had a... um, a physical assessment done. It was part of a rehabilitation program that I was getting made. And I, I was lucky. I got to see one of the best trainers in Australia. And um, this guy down in Sydney trains like lots of Olympic athletes and top Australian athletes. And then he also like trains a lot of Australian celebrities and stuff. And the first thing he did when I went to see him was he took a whole bunch of measurements of my body, like to see what we needed to work on, create some benchmarks. And he measures my quadriceps like just above my knees and he, he measures and kind of looks all puzzled and, and then he re-measures again looks at it and looks at me and he can't help himself he just bursts out laughing <laughs> he's like mark mate you have the exact same size legs as jennifer hawkins in this universe. <laughs> i'm genetically gifted to be a female supermodel <laughs> not a professional surfer I've always found, though, I can now perform the more genetically gifted surfers and be more valuable to my sponsors as long as I'm surrounded by an amazingly talented team. Best filmers, best photographers, the best water safety crew, the best publicists, the best managers, the best meteorologists. Like, all these different people are the reason that I was able to manufacture a career out of the sport that I wasn't particularly gifted to do. I was lucky. I had this, um, this really good run. It was leading into 2016. It lasted for like five or six years. And myself and my teams travelled all around the world surfing the, the biggest waves everywhere. And, and in that time, we won multiple big wave surfing awards. And because of the awards, we got bigger and bigger sponsorships. And that whole time, I was going through lots of wipeouts, like the wipeouts, like in the first clip that you saw, they're just a part of surfing. But I was so well prepared physically. I had an amazing water safety team that I kind of came up from each one of those wipeouts without a scratch on me. Only bad thing about that was that I started to become a little bit overconfident. I started to believe that there was no wave big enough on planet Earth that could do me any serious harm. Boy, was I wrong. Back in um, October 2016, I was on a shoot for my major sponsor at the time, Red Bull, and we travelled down the south coast of New South Wales to surf a wave that it's not a particularly big wave, but the nickname of this wave is Killers. It's called Killers because it comes out of really deep water and then where it breaks in the top left-hand corner of the screen, that broken white water, That's where this wave's about to break. That's called the impact zone. Below that broken white water is a rock bed, a reef, and it's only about this deep. Right in this moment, it's my first wave of the shoot. I can see that I've picked the wrong wave. It's too big for how shallow it is on the reef, which means that it's going to all close out at once. So right here, I dove forward off my surfboard to try and get down underwater, let the wave go over the top of me so that I could swim away to safety. Like I've done that hundreds of times before. This time, I dove off, got down underwater, the wave passed over the top of me and just as I was swimming away, thinking that I was fine, all that power and energy coming out of the deep water, it grabbed a hold of me, pulled me back, lifted me up, and smashed me into the reef. I landed with all my weight on my right leg and my foot got stuck in a hole in the reef and then all the power of the wave came down and broke directly on my back and compressed me into the rocks. Instantly, I felt my knee pop 
and blinding pain. I got rolled around underwater by the wave and the whole time I was just clutching down at my knee trying to support it because the pain was so bad. Eventually, I managed to fight my way to the surface and just as I got my first breath of air, I just saw stars and I fainted because of the pain. Luckily, my water safety team who were on jet skis they soared just as I surfaced and quickly came in and rescued me before I went back underwater. They took me into the safety of the beach, dragged me up onto the beach and then ran to call for medical support. I woke up the following morning in um, Canberra Hospital. And when I woke up, I, I didn't really have a clear memory of what had happened the day before. All I knew was that I was in hospital and, and, I, and I had this crazy pain coming from my leg. So I looked down to take a look what's going on. If you have a queasy stomach, don't look at the screen. This is what I saw when I looked down at my leg. What had happened was I completely dislocated my knee. So I tore every ligament and tendon that holds your knee together. And then when my knee was completely separated, and I was getting rolled around underwater, it tore through the major artery that runs through your knee and supplies blood to your foot. It would have been about three hours after I woke up in hospital that a surgeon comes in to my room. He had performed emergency surgery on my leg the night before. And he comes up to my hospital bedside and he kind of gives me that, um, that good news, bad news spiel. He's like, he's like, Mark, we managed to save your leg last night. He said, if you arrive one hour later, we would have had to amputate your leg at the knee. It was only because the first ambulance officer on the scene went against his partner's advice and rather than drive the three hours to Canberra Hospital, he called for the medevac helicopter. I was over the moon when I got that news, but I was kind of like a little bit taken back because I had no idea that I was at risk of losing my leg. I said to the doctor, I said, Doc, from my knee down, he's just burning pins and needles and I can't move or feel my foot at all. He said, Mark, this is the bad news. We were able to fix the torn artery in your leg, but while we were operating and we noticed there's such, such severe damage to the nerves that run through your knee joint and control your foot. He said, those ne nerves are never going to heal. There's nothing we could do to fix him. He said, you're never going to walk properly again. Never going to have the use of your foot again. Never going to be able to surf again. From the moment that he told me that news, over the next month, while I was stuck in hospital waiting for those wounds in my leg to heal, I just spiraled down into this dark hole. Like I was so full of anger and frustration for what had happened. I was blaming everyone else. I was like consumed by like self-pity for what I was going through. And in that time, rather than the wounds heal, they actually started to become really badly infected to the point where the surgeon said, look, if the infection doesn't heal, start to go away and it gets any further up your leg, we're going to have to amputate your leg. I was so low at that time, I didn't even care. I said to them just to cut it off. I thought I'd have a better chance at surfing on a prosthetic leg than on a leg with a foot that doesn't even work. I think it would have been like a week before they were about to do the surgery. Um, out of the blue, I get this, uh, like a direct message on Instagram and it's from this young kid named Jason and Jason had read about what had happened to me on a surf media website and he writes to me he's like hey Mark I'm a big fan of yours I've been following your surf career ever since I was little he said I, I just read that you're in Canberra hospital he said I'm actually here too like would you mind if I came up to meet you I didn't even reply to him I didn't want to see anyone at that point. 
I just put my phone aside. It was actually my now wife, Brittany. She, um, she saw the message open on my phone. She figured I could do with some company. So she writes back to Jason as though it's from me. She's like, hey, Jason. Yeah, no worries. I'd love to meet you. Why don't you come up this afternoon? I'll tell you what, we'll sneak some beers in and we'll hang out. It'll be awesome. My wife always seems to know what's best. That afternoon, Jason, he gets, um, he gets wheeled into my hospital bedroom by his brother, Will. Jason and Will had decided to go on a round-the-world holiday because Jace had finished his trade, Will had just finished school. And um, the first trip of the round-the-world holiday, they went to Canada to go snowboarding. And the last run of the day, not doing anything crazy, Jace just slipped on the ice, broke his neck. A complete quadriplegic. He gets wheeled up to my hospital bedside and then, like, as best as he can, he, he kind of tries to stick out his hand to, to shake my hand. He's got this big grin on his face. I swear, the moment that I shook that kid's hand, I swear the course of my life changed. In that moment, I went from being so full of anger, frustration, like self-pity for what I was having to deal with to looking at this poor kid, having a totally selfish response, mind you, but looking at this poor kid and being like, I'm the luckiest person alive. Like if I had to hit the reef any other way on that wave, I could easily be dealing with what this poor kid's dealing with. Like a situation that's a million times worse than what I was going through. I couldn't help but think over that next week, this thought just constantly recurring in my head, like what Jason would give to only have to deal with what I was going through. And during that week, I was like lying in my hospital bed and rather than being angry and frustrated and hating the world, during that week I was like, I was happy to be there. I'd look down at my leg and I'd be like, this is all I've got to deal with. How lucky am I? The craziest thing was the, um, the infections in my leg that had been getting worse over a month, they healed in that week, out of the blue. Could have been a coincidence. I remember this doctor, he came up to me and he's like, Mark, like, what have you been doing differently now that all of a sudden these, these infections have gone away? Like, have you got some kind of weird herbal ointment or some shit that you're putting into your leg? I wasn't doing anything different. The only thing that I could put it down to was I had spent the last week lying in that hospital bed, happy to be there. And during that week, it was actually the only time I slept through full nights. Like the anger and frustration and the self-pity had all just kind of lifted I was so surprised because in my head that played a role in the way my body healed the infection. And it was so surprising to me. So I went online and I, um, I Googled the science of gratitude because that's what I figured I was feeling. I just felt lucky. And if you Google the science of gratitude, there's quite a lot of studies highlighting how if you can cultivate an emotional state of gratitude... Like, and you can feel that luck. And it, most of these studies, it's like anywhere from a minute to five minutes long if you can do it. What it does is just kind of switches the way your nervous system's functioning. It takes you out of a sympathetic or stressed state and brings you into what they refer to as like a parasympathetic state. And supposedly in that state, all the different systems in your body are kind of optimised. In particular, your, your immune system. So after reading that and seeing that diagram actually quite specifically, I was like, surely this played a role in the way my body was dealing with the infection. Like I'd just spent a month in that state. 
and then a week just intermittently in this state. Not all the time, but just more so. I knew I had a long road of recovery ahead of me, and in my head at that time, I didn't think I'd surf. I just wanted to get out of hospital and be able to swim in the ocean again. And I had to do nine different surgeries to be able to do that. I knew I was going to have to do lots of like physical rehab, but I figured after seeing this, I was just going to try and like feel that gratitude like as consistently as I could in any given day. I wish I could say I've been on a cloud of bliss and happiness ever since, but <laughs> I'll be lying. Get angry and frustrated all the time still. I'm not, uh, along with being hyper introverted, that test also said that I'm hyper neurotic. So, <laughs> which means like my brain's amazing at looking at all different situations, just highlighting all the things that are going to go wrong. <laughs> so it's not like kind of natural for me to be optimistic. Um, but I found this really good technique. It helped me. It was from a book called um, Atomic Habits. It's called Habit Stacking. And it's basically where you just take a new positive lifestyle habit that you want to implement. It can be anything. It could be like skill development if you want. For me, it was just practicing gratitude. And then you stack it on top of a primary habit that you have. And primary habits are just like the things that you do really consistently each given day. You know, you might wake up each morning, similar time, and have your first cup of coffee, shower, brush your teeth, drive to work breakfast at some point, like sit down for lunch, check emails regularly, sit down for dinner in the evenings, favourite TV show, like all, all these different things that you do really consistently. The theory is that your brain kind of does moments of those things on autopilot and it just means that there's some space to do something new and then because there's such a strong pathway created in those habitual patterns, but what this does is kind of takes the new habit or thing that you want to do and kind of hijacks the pattern that's already created. So you can kind of quickly create a new habit or quicker. <clears throat> so what it looked like for me is like in the mornings before I got my first cup of coffee, I kind of made it a rule. I wasn't allowed to have it until I'd actually like forced myself to write three things down that I was grateful for. And it seems like nothing, but if you force yourself to write it, it makes you think about it. And if you think for long enough, your body will have an emotional response. I'd actually get my wife to police it, so it was like I had to write my stuff down and then come over and hand my paper over and get my <laughs> cup of coffee in return. <clears throat> and then when I had to do like the, the physiotherapy on my leg, that was kind of equal parts painful and boring at the same time. Right before I'd start doing any given exercise, I'd just watch a slideshow that I made on my phone that just had a bunch of photos that just made me feel lucky. I'd put my favourite music on it, I'd headphones on, I'd watch it, and then I'd kind of feel that state, and then I'd start doing the exercise. And I noticed that I could almost every time do about 30% more repetitions of any given exercise if I started in that state. And I'm guessing it just had something to do with that I could deal with the pain of the exercise a little bit better. But the best technique that I came across by far, this one helped me physically for sure, but it had this like unintended benefit. This technique kind of optimised all the relationships in my life. Because what it is, it's called the gratitude text. And it's basically just sending a text message of gratitude to someone in your life. Something along the lines with, hey, I was just thinking, I'm pretty lucky to have you in my life. I just wanted to say thanks for this, this and this. I really appreciate you. So if you write a message like that, you'll have that response. And the bonus is the person that you send it to actually has like twice as strong a response reading a message like that. And then the nice thing is they normally just send another one back and it kind of creates this like wave. <laughs> it's like a wave of gratitude that moves through your social circles, you know, and, and you kind of 
become used to sending messages like that because it's quite awkward to start with. It, it's so awkward actually that I decided to create like a competition to try and entice audiences to, to actually give it a go. Um, the name of the competition is Wave of Gratitude. And if you choose to participate in the Wave of Gratitude right now, you will go into the draw to win a family holiday to Hawaii. And I'm going to draw this out in January. Um, I only do this for the audiences that I speak to. It's not that many people, so it's pretty good odds to win. <laughs> All you have to do to enter is send one text message of gratitude to someone in your life. You screenshot the message after you've sent it. You don't have to wait for the reply. And then send it through to this email address. And then I'm going to draw the winner out. So one text message of gratitude. Just to sweeten the deal, if you still think those odds are not that great, I'll give someone in this room, I'll draw it out after I finish my keynote in like 10 minutes. I'll draw one, one person an entry out and you'll win $250, okay, just for sending a text message. So I'll give you a few minutes to send one. I'll play a little bit of music. If, if it's kind of, you find it kind of awkward, I made a script for you you can use. <laughs> it goes along the lines of, hey, I'm just at this work function. I'm listening to this weird big wave surfer dude. He's talking all about gratitude. But it just made me think that I'm pretty lucky to have you in my life. Just wanted to say thanks for this, this, and this. So I'll play a little bit of music, give you some time to send your text message, screenshot it, and send it to the email address. Don't worry, I'm not going to share your messages with anyone. It's like the most automated way I've figured out how to do this. Don't be worried if you get like a weird response. Often if you send it to like your partner or something, you might get something like, are you okay? Like, are you dying or something? Or you'll get one like, okay, now tell me what you've done wrong. So I use techniques like this as consistently as I could to bring as much of that gratitude practice into my life just to kind of give the way I saw it, it was just giving my nervous system like breaks through the day of dealing with pain, being stressed. And, and I feel like just those breaks made all the difference. Eventually after um, 18 months, nine different surgeries, I was able to get this um, footage that I'm about to show you. And I sent this footage to all the surgeons that did the, different operations on my leg, just to say thank you to them. Actually, and to this one other doctor. He was, um, he was in charge of my pain medication for the nerve pain. Most pessimistic person I've ever come across in my life. <laughs> Worse than me. <clears throat> he would kind of like come into my hospital bedroom. It was just after I met Jason. So I was like a whole lot more optimistic than usual. And he'd come up to my bedside and he'd be like, Mark, I really don't think that you're grasping how bad the situation is. You do realise that you're never going to surf again. Like, you, you have to come to terms with that. Like, to his credit, he was quite concerned that I'd get depressed later and get addicted to the medication he was giving me. But it was driving me mental to get these depressing pep talks over and over again every second day. So it was nice to send this footage to the surgeons to say thank you and to that one other doctor just to say, brother, you were wrong. I swear, after going for like a year lying in a hospital bed, thinking I was never going to surf again, to being able to stand inside a barreling wave one more time, that wave will go down as the most memorable I ever ride. Um, in that footage, I'm surfing at maybe 30% of what my ability level was before I got injured. I've got permanent nerve damage, so my foot doesn't work. Uh, ankle joint doesn't work, knee joint doesn't work, all kinds of things, but just good enough to be able to ride waves like that. Um, not quite good enough to surf big waves or get my career back, but I was still pretty happy with that comeback. I remember actually that <clears throat> actually a couple of things that happened since then. I was just going to slide them into the story today. Um, I became really close friends with Jason 
after I met him in hospital and we stayed in close contact. He was going through his own really difficult rehab journey. And um, it was funny because he kind of took it upon himself to be my motivator. Like he wanted me to get back to surfing big waves so he could maybe one day come and watch live. And um, he was actually the first person that I sent this footage to because I was all excited. And I texted it to him and he wrote back to me. He's like, it's not that big a wave, is it? So, <laughs> I was just like, you little prick. <laughs> I said to him, I'm like, all right, how about this? How about you get back into your rehab, get as strong as you can, and if you can get strong enough, I promise I'll figure out a way for you to ride a wave by yourself again. And if you do that, I'll give surfing a big wave another go. I didn't actually think he'd take me up on it, but he did. <laughs> he got actually through crazy amounts of rehab, the use of certain muscle groups in his shoulders that the surgeon said that he wouldn't get back. And um, when he got strong enough, I, uh, I hired out an entire wave pool after it was built down in Melbourne. And I flew Jason, his family, and his uh, best mates down. And we surprised him, like we wheeled him into the pool. And uh, it's kind of like just flat water. And then the engineers just hit the button and perfect waves come rolling through. And we just went, Jace, we're going to figure out a way for you to ride one of these waves. I swear the smile on his face when he did it, it was insane. And the courage that he had to show to be able to do it. Like what you've got to realise, if Jace falls on any given wave face down, he's got no way to turn over and breathe. Like he's got to lay face down in the water and just trust that you'll get to him in time to turn him over. I think how scary that is, every wave. After he did that, I had no other choice but to uh, go out and, and try and surf a big wave one more time. How much of a legend is Jason? <laughs> Most inspiring person I've ever come across. And that chance meeting that I had with him in hospital, it changed the course of my life. If you're wondering, Jason's doing really good. He's, uh, he's got a really good job with the building company that he was going to work for. He's able to do like property assessment work on the computer. He, um, we surf like quite regularly. He moved up to Coolangatta just around the corner from me. So we try and get a couple of surfs a month in. Creates quite a bit of pain for him. So it's, uh, it's hard to do much more than that, but he still, he loves it. And he's got a beautiful girlfriend. So he's kind of killing it on all different fronts, Jace. <laughs> um, I'm happy to tell you that last little bit of footage of me surfing big waves down in Tasmania, that was just enough to convince my old sponsor, Red Bull, to re-sign me again for another two years. It's a shit contract, but I never thought I was getting another one. So. <laughs> uh, like we all have different fears, right? doesn't matter how they compare to anyone else's. just matters if they're holding you back from something important in your life. And... Like we've got a pretty short life, right? They might be worth taking on those fears. If you want to, experience is the only way to do it. And that's one little step after one little step. It's tough to get it because it usually involves failure along the way. That's why you need that motivation and clarity around what you want and why you want it. Like real clear pictures will help that part of your brain create the positive emotion and in effect make you resilient at the same time. <clears throat> And when you hit the road bumps and deal with the failures, if you can, and it's, it's easier said than done sometimes, but if you can, like shift your perspective and create that emotional state of gratitude, it won't solve your problem. But what it kind of does is it, it gives you enough physical energy to do what you need to do to get through the adversity. That's about all I got for you. So thank you guys so much. Mark, that was awesome. Um, really uh, emotive. And uh, I think the work that uh, you do, uh, I think on some level, everyone uh, is confronted by fear and, and it gets in the road of a lot of important stuff, like you say. So the work you're doing is amazing. So I think mean, we've got probably time for two questions before we wrap up and get everyone away on time. So 
I'll throw it to you guys. Steve. Thank you, Mark. Uh, two things, mate. One, you should probably consider a career in public speaking. <laughs> and By secondly, uh, never compare your legs to Jennifer Hawkins. Yeah. Um, can, I, can I just mate, go deep? you should see them when they're shaved. <laughs> <laughs> can I just go deep on one thing? Um, your fear management strategies. When you get to that last 30 seconds or the 10 seconds when something is right in your face, time to push off, time to do it. Can you just talk me through the steps that you take, your management regime, just to understand that a little bit more, you know, in granular detail? Yeah. Thanks, man. I'd say 95% of the work to deal with that moment is done before. Like it's the training, the experience, the preparation. That's what allows you to deal with that moment the most, 95%. And then in the actual midst of the moment, I think that's where the kind of call them cognitive techniques can be quite handy like an ability to just shift your focus like outside of the negative stream of thought that you might be having in the moment and and you can do that with there's a host of techniques like a breathing technique um i use before i walk up on stage often one that um i don't know the scientists have kind of claimed it it's called they call it like a physiological sigh but it's basically like you just take two deep inhales and then force like a strong exhale. And if you do that like three times, you'll settle down for sure. But if you haven't done the training and the experience, you'll go straight back into being nervous, you know. But uh, yeah, there's lots of different techniques like that that are, that are really handy in that moment just to sort of maintain a bit of that composure, yeah. My, mine's just a general surfing question. <laughs> But uh, I'm, I'm a big fan and, and my heart's actually still going from some of those videos and the talks. So it was absolutely awesome. Um, but when, when you talk about that exposure therapy, like what, what is it actually like being under one of those big waves? Because, of course, the difference in the pool is there's some degree of control. Mm. And so when you're in that moment of a wave like that crashing over you, where, where does your head go? And how do you sort of yeah manage that that stress yeah it's kind of the training in the pool is just trying to like kind of trigger a response so that when i'm out in the ocean and i fall on a really big wave like something unexpectedly big like a lot bigger than what i normally fall on um the response now that i seem to have after doing all the training is i'll naturally relax because it's like it's programmed in my brain that my best chance of survival here is that and like I fall and have this really quick moment of panic and then I just relax because it's like it's just built into me now that that's the only way that I get a good chance of coming up. Um, a lot of other surfers use different mental techniques kind of similar to what we're talking about while they're under. Like they'll just try and like because you kind of want to try and enjoy the ride of getting rolled around. Like if it was a theme park ride, it'd be awesome, you know. <laughs> like, <laughs> But so they, they like... So Ross Clark Jones, he, he had a famous one where he'd wipe out and then he'd play a whole scene of being like walking into a nightclub and dancing and having a hell time while he was underwater like, and it would just relax him. Yeah. And uh, yeah, surfers just do different things like that. You can like physically force yourself to smile underwater, like not enough to open your mouth but take in water, but just doing that will relax you a little bit. Um, yeah, there's, there's a bunch of different techniques but... It's just the, the steps along the way. And, and then managing the moment of the wipeout more so than anything else is, is having like a safe water safety team. So I always say to people who are like novice surfers surfing waves bigger than they've ever surfed before, the best thing you can do is actually just have someone on the beach spotting you. And if you're in danger, they'll, they can either help or they'll get a lifeguard to help you. You know, like, and when you know that person's there and you're out in the water, like, that'll decrease, like, the, the, the chance of you panicking more than anything else because you know you can just put your hand up and then someone's coming. You know, like, that's probably the most powerful thing. Yeah. Awesome. Round of applause for Mark. Thanks. Thanks so much for tuning in. It means the world to me. Uh, if you got something of value out of the podcast, I'd love you to pay it forward and share it with anyone that might benefit. Thanks again for tuning in.